I'll ask you to turn this evening, please, in God's Word to Ezekiel 48. So Ezekiel chapter 48. And we'll just read some verses towards the end of the chapter. We'll read from verse 30. And we'll read down to verse 35. So Ezekiel 48. And we'll read from verse 30 to the end of the chapter. Let's hear the word of our God. And these are the goings out of the city on the north side, 4,500 measures. And the gates of the city shall be after the names of the tribes of Israel, three gates northward, one gate of Reuben, one gate of Judah, one gate of Levi. And at the east side, 4,500 and three gates, the one gate of Joseph, one gate of Benjamin, one gate of Dan. And at the south side, 4,500 measures, and three gates, one gate of Simeon, one gate of Issachar, one gate of Sebulun. At the west side, 4,500, with their three gates, one gate of Gad, one gate of Asher, and one gate of Naphtali. It was round about 18,000 measures, and the name of the city from that day shall be, The Lord is There. Amen. And I trust the Lord will bless his word to our hearts. Let's just ask the Lord to uh, come and help even in the preaching and the hearing of his word. So let's pray. Loving God and gracious and eternal Father, it is with thanksgiving and praise we come before thee. We thank thee for the one who is highly exalted, one who is at thy right hand, who ever lives to intercede for us. And we thank thee, Father, that we come in his name and upon the merit of that finished and accomplished work. And Lord, of ourselves we have nothing with which we could ever, O God, please Thee. And yet, Lord, we thank Thee that Thou art well pleased with Thy Son. And Lord, His righteousness has been imputed to us. And therefore we come accepted. We come as Thy dear children. We come as needy as ever. And Lord, we lift our eyes to Thee. And we ask in simple faith that Thou would grant unto us the promised Holy Ghost. I pray that Thou would wash me in the blood and that Thou would fill me with Thy Spirit that thou would have me speak, O God, the way that you would want me to speak and say the things that you would have me to say. Lord, I desire to be used of thee. I desire, O God, not to be a hindrance to the word, but Lord, to simply be in thy hand, that thou would speak to thy people. Come near us, O God, we pray. We long for thee. And Lord, we pray that thou would bless the word even to every heart. Hear us and do us good for these things we ask in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen. Well, tonight is the ninth installment in our study of the compound names of the Lord. We have considered Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that healeth thee, Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our banner, Jehovah M. Kadesh, the Lord which sanctify thee, uh, the Lord our peace, Jehovah Shalom, and the last time, Jehovah Sekenu, the Lord our righteousness. We come tonight to study and to look at the seventh compound name, which is found in the very last verse of the book of Ezekiel, chapter 48 and the verse 35. And the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. The Lord is there, Jehovah Shema in the Hebrew. And you know, this is a name that speaks of the presence of the Lord. This is something that man was created for, something that man was meant to enjoy, the presence of God. Now, as we read there at the very beginning, Genesis, it explains how God walked and talked 
with Adam and Eve in the garden. And God was there. God was with them. But you know that sin, uh, it ruined, it marred the fellowship, and it was broken. And consequently, Adam and Eve, they were, they were cast out of the garden from the immediate presence of the Lord. Now, time passed, and God graciously presenced himself with the people in a special way. We think of the tabernacle, uh, which was the visible manifestation of God's presence among his people. When it was complete, the construction of it, the glory of the Lord, well, it filled that temple as, or that tabernacle as we read there at the end of the book of Exodus. Later still, David, he wanted to build a temple for God to dwell in. But it was David's son Solomon who was granted that privilege and that honor to construct the temple. It was a project that took seven years to complete. And when it was completed, Solomon, he conceded, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. Nevertheless, once again, the glory of the Lord came and filled the temple, an evidence that the Lord was there. Now, the wheels of time, they rolled on, and after Solomon, the nation of Israel, was divided, and there followed a succession of kings and prophets who both ruled and ministered in the northern and the southern kingdoms. Ezekiel was one of those prophets. He was taken to Babylon with a second group of captives 11 years before Jerusalem was destroyed. And he ministered to his fellow exiles during the first 25 or so years of the captivity. Now, while he ministered, there was false prophets, and they deceived the exiles, and they said that there would be a speedy return to Judah. But Ezekiel warned them that the beloved city of Jerusalem would be destroyed, and the exile would be prolonged. And in 585 BC, an escapee from Jerusalem who evaded the Babylonians, he reached Ezekiel with the news that the city had indeed fallen six months earlier. And that did dash the hopes of any immediate deliverance or return of the exiles. Now, Ezekiel was given a number of visions by God. And in the last vision that occurred 14 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, we have the revelation of this compound named Jehovah Shema. The Lord is there. And what a name that is. Now, we know that our God he is omnipresent. There is nowhere where God is not. And the psalmist spoke about that in Psalm 139 and the verse 8. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. But there is a real sense in which God's immediate presence can be enjoyed and experienced by his people. Just as he walked and he talked with Adam and Eve there at the beginning. And tonight as we think about this name, this name Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there. I want to do so under three points, three headings this evening. As you and I, we can, we can know, we can experience the immediate presence of our God in that particular and in that special way, though He is omnipresent. The first thing I want us to think about tonight is Jehovah Shema and the context. There is obviously a context in which this last verse of Ezekiel is found. Ezekiel's 
prophetic ministry is really divided up into three parts. First, the first section, the first part, he rehearses the sins of Judah and he warns God's people of impending judgment in the captivity and also of the destruction of their capital. In the second section, well, Judah's neighbors are condemned because of their idolatry and their cruel cruel treatment of God's people. And then finally, in the last section, Ezekiel, he tells of the restoration. When the people would repent of their sins, God would put His Holy Spirit within them, and the glory of God would once again come and visit the temple. Now, the major vision that Ezekiel received concerning the Lord's presence is recorded in chapter 10. In chapter 10, where he sees the glory of God departing from both the temple and the city of Jerusalem. The prophet, as I said, he had been warning the people about the coming judgment for many years. And here he receives this vision that the Lord was going to visit his people Not to bless them, but he's going to visit in order that he might withdraw his glory from them. Now, Ezekiel was alarmed at this. He knew exactly why God was removing or would remove his glory. He had seen with his own eyes the awful sin and the abomination that God's people had committed in the previous years, not only in the temple, but also throughout the land. For example, in the temple court, well, the people, they had turned away from facing towards the holy place, and instead they faced towards the east because they had become worshippers of the sun. And you know, there's many like that today. They head to the beach on the Lord's day instead of God's house. And really, to be honest, that's just a different and another slant on worshipping the sun. They were giving God the leftovers in their day. Any old thing will do for God. Any old sacrifice, any old offering. And and God had seen this. And God basically said, well, I'm no longer going to tolerate this. I won't allow my glory, my presence to coexist with such sin and wickedness. And Ezekiel watched in horror, as we read there in verse 4 of chapter 10... We read there that then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And so the glory, the Shekinah, was lifting up from between the mercy seat and had withdrawn from the holy place there to stand or to abide at the threshold of the house, the house of the Lord. In verse 5 in chapter 10 we read, of really a final display of God's supernatural power and glory to the people. But how did the people react in Ezekiel's vision? Well, no one even noticed. He didn't notice. The priests, the people, they were so busy going about their own business, fulfilling their rituals and activities, that they had no awareness that the Lord, the Lord's presence was withdrawing from them. They were so blinded by their fleshly pursuits and their sin that they didn't even realize that the Lord's glory was departing. You know, it's sad when a church gets to such a stage. Oh, there's plenty of activity. There's plenty of ritual. There's there's plenty of endeavor and work. But the glory, 
The presence is gone, and the people are not even aware. You know, this can happen to an individual as well, the conscious sense of of God's presence. You remember Samson, don't you? Well, he was one. And he did not realize that the presence of the Lord had departed from him. He thought he could shake himself and go out as at other times, but he wished not that the Lord had departed. He was blinded by his sin. He had engaged in sensuality. He had dishonored his Nazarite, Nazarite vow. He had took fire into his bosom and he got burnt. And the tragedy was that the conscious sense of the Lord's presence had departed from him. That which enabled him, that which empowered him to do the mighty things that he had done, had gone, had withdrawn. And he just become like another man, weak. And you know, if that happens to the child of God, if they walk in sin and they grieve the Spirit of God and, and God withdraws the conscious sense of His presence from them, will they just become like another man? They have no power in their ministry, no power in their Sunday school class, no power in a children's meeting, no power in the pulpit. There's no power when the Spirit of God withdraws, when the glory withdraws from His people. Ezekiel here. He watched the glory above the temple door. And then he saw it move again in verses 18 and 19 in chapter 10. He saw it lifted up from the temple, hovering over the city. And then go to chapter 11 and verse 23. And we read there, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood in the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. The glory of the Lord went right out of Jerusalem. Onto the mountain on the east side of the city, the Mount of Olives. See, this lingering, hesitating vision that Ezekiel saw seems to suggest that the Lord was reluctant. He was reluctant to depart. He seemed to be waiting for someone to, to, to notice, to cry out like David, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. But no one noticed. And no one cried out. And Ezekiel's heart was broke for he knew. He knew that there was nothing more important than the presence of the Lord in all those religious exercises. That's what made the difference. Brethren and sisters, there is nothing more important in all our ministries in this congregation. I would venture to say in our lives and the presence of of the Lord, the conscious sense of the presence of our God walking with us and talking with us and God in the midst of His people. You know, I encourage you again, I listen to it myself, to go home tonight. I've said this before, but search on YouTube. It's a little sermon snippet by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called The Presence of God. And go home and listen to that. And you know, there is nothing that is more important than the presence of God in the work of the Lord. May we never be too puffed up with pride to notice should should the Lord withdraw from us because of our sin. You see, that is His way of chastening us. It's His way of sanctifying us. It's His way of correcting us. It's His way of humbling us that we might seek Him. You see, this whole scene that Ezekiel 
This vision that he received, it's reminiscent of the time when the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And Eli's daughter-in-law named her child Ichabod, saying that the glory of God has departed from Israel. And that's what that ark signified, the presence of the Lord. And she said, and she called that child Ichabod. I've heard it said before, the name Ichabod could be written over many a church. Because the presence of God has departed. They're walking in sin. They are, as it were, conducting their affairs in the ministry of God's Word in a manner that is contrary to how God has revealed it. Take the simple issue of women ministers. How could the glory, how could the presence of God remain in a place that is operating contrary to the Word of God? But brethren and sisters, I don't want to point the finger. Because there's sin in our own lives that can quench the Spirit, that can grieve the Spirit, that can cause the Spirit to withdraw from us. That we lose the conscious sense of His presence. And if that happens, we become as other men. That's all we become. By this time, after this vision had been given... Judah's spirit was completely broken. You see, insult had been added to injury and they were in captivity. But now by this vision, they had also heard that, well, the Lord was no longer in Jerusalem. And as a slave by the rivers of Babylon, there they sat down and they wept when they remembered Zion. Their harps were silent and their tongues were still. But Ezekiel was to get another vision. One of hope, one of consolation, one of restoration, one of visitation. And in chapter 40, we find that the Holy Spirit takes the prophet to a high mountain overlooking Jerusalem and all of Judah. And he saw this here as Albert Barnes records. And he put it like this, a a rebuilt temple, a reformed priesthood, a restored monarchy, a reappointed territory, a renewed people, and as a result, the spread of prosperity over the whole earth. He had another vision, one of consolation, one of hope. Now there's much, as you can well guess, much discussion over the interpretation of the visions of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel from chapter 40 onwards, he takes many chapters to describe in detail the vision of the temple that he saw. Now I do not believe that the temple that he saw in the vision is to be taken in a literal way. I believe rather it is symbolic of God dwelling again amongst his people. There is no evidence anywhere in Ezekiel's writing to suggest that the temple that he saw was indeed to be an actual building. Some have suggested, well, this temple that he saw in his vision, well, it is to be built and animal sacrifices are to be reintroduced. But you know, this goes against all the teaching of the New Testament, which firmly firmly declares that there is one lamb who has been slain before the foundation of the world and Christ's sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. All animal sacrifices, as you know, in the Old Testament were only types and shadows and their blood could never take away sin until Christ came. So why on earth would you build a temple and reintroduce sacrifices? 
Besides all this, why did the Jews not try to build the structure that Ezekiel described when their captivity ended? They built another temple, one that didn't match Ezekiel's vision. Why? Well, they knew it was simply impossible to accomplish. You see, if you were to outline the dimensions of the temple that Ezekiel described, including all its surroundings, it would encompass twice the landmass of Judah, the region of Judah. Ezekiel was describing something else in his vision. He was describing the great temple of God's people who would be gathered from every kindred and every tongue and people and nation who God would dwell among. That's what he was describing, I believe. He saw the new Jerusalem, a city, a city described in Revelation 21 and the verse 2 as a bride adorned for her husband, adorned with its heavenly citizens in which the glory of God would, re- would reside. Ezekiel got a glimpse of the future when the people of God would once again dwell in the immediate presence of their God. In chapter 43, in the verse 1 we read, Afterward he brought me to the gate, and even the gate that looked eastward toward the east. And behold, the glory of the Lord God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. Just as Ezekiel saw the glory depart through the eastern gate, so he's seen it return through the eastern gate from the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley and into the Temple Mount. And you know, that's the route that Christ will take when he returns again. When ushered in is a new heaven and a new earth. This is the context in which we read Verse, those words of verse 35 of chapter 48, the name of that city, God's great city, where God's people will dwell with Him. And that's where you read the words, the name of the city shall, from that day shall be the Lord is there. Jehovah Shema and the context. Secondly, tonight, I want us to think about Jehovah Shema and Christ. And Christ, now while there most certainly is a far fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision, there is also a near fulfillment. And that happened with the coming of the Lord Jesus and his presence among the church through the Spirit. We as God's people can experience God's presence right now. The Bible teaches us that we do not have to wait to the final fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy to enjoy and be encouraged by the presence of the Lord. God came and dwelt among men in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read of that in John's Gospel, chapter 1. He is Emmanuel, interpreted God with us. The glory of God, the fullness of the Godhead bodily resides In Jesus Christ, in a real and a literal sense, the glory of the Lord did return to the temple when Christ stood in its midst in the days of his earthly ministry. And though he has now ascended, he did promise his disciples that he would be with them, always, even unto the end. And you know, that promise is fulfilled among his people by the Holy Spirit, who dwells in, And who is another like unto Jesus Christ? 
This is a way we are to understand those great promises of Matthew 18 and the verse 20, where two or three are met together in my name. There am I in the midst of them. The presence of God is found in the people of God in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and the verse 16 and 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and the verse 16 we're taught there that we are the temple of God. Both individually and collectively as a church. And he dwells with us and he dwells in us. We have a description of the corporate people of God as a city in Psalm 46. You turn there. And that's a description of really the church. The corporate people of God. Psalm 46. And there we read. We read that God is our present help. He is with his people. He is among his people. And then we all go on down and we read that there is a river in verse 4. The streams whereof shall make glad the city of God. And, and you know, you cross-reference that with what the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 7 and the verse 38. We find that that's a reference to the Spirit of God. There is a river. The streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place, the tabernacles, or the dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her. And that right early, the Lord is in the midst of his church, as we read in Revelation chapter 1. There is no doubt that the presence of the Lord is promised unto his people. And of the church we can say, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. And in the last number of weeks and months, truly we have to say that the Lord's presence is a felt and a known reality. We've been conscious of it. And does that not thrill your soul? You know, there is nothing, there is nothing that can be compared to being in a meeting where the presence of the Lord is, where prayer is generated by the Spirit, where the preaching is by the demonstration and the power of the Holy Ghost, and signs follow the preaching of God's Word, where God's people are fragranced, with hearty thanksgiving and their praises unto God, and the atmosphere is warmed with their love the one for the other. Is that not something you want more of? Do you not want something more of the Lord's presence? I know it's something I desire. You know, this flames our longing for the Lord to draw near to us. And do you know, do you know what that does in turn? It causes us to draw nigh unto Him. The more he draws near to us, it causes us to draw nigh unto him. And it leads us to put away those lesser things, to set things right in our lives, in our homes, in our church. For we know like Ezekiel that there is nothing else that matters more than the presence of the Lord. It's true that we can never know the fullness of the Lord's presence until we reach glory. But this is something I believe we can experience in greater degrees in this world. You know, you take whatever phrase you want. But when you think of an infinite and eternal God, there are greater depths or there are greater heights. Whatever, whatever phrase you want to use, there's greater depths, there's greater heights to which we can know the presence of our God. 
Don't be satisfied to the level that we have reached, brethren and sisters. Do not be satisfied. We have been, you know, we can hear, we can read the accounts of the past when God came down and a whole society, the whole society was saturated with the presence of the Lord. And that had a profound effect upon the souls of men and women. There was awful, awful conviction of soul where they writhed in spiritual agony. And then they rejoiced at the sight of Calvary when it broke upon their soul. That's what we want. Child of God, if you've been enjoying a taste, and I believe that's all it is, God has been giving us a taste. He has drawn us out after Himself so that we might, as it were, put away those things. That we might ourselves draw nigh unto Him. That we would put the things right that we know needs to be right and be done with those lesser things. And He's given us a taste, brethren and sisters. That's all it is. It's a scratch upon the surface, to use another analogy. And you've been enjoying it. You've been experiencing it. So as, as we as preachers, we have known God's help in preaching. But that's all it is. It's a taste. And if you've known that taste and you're enjoying it, what should you do? Cry to God for more of it. Cry to God that He would help you not to quench the Spirit, to grieve the Spirit, to put those things right in your life because there's always more of God to experience. Do you not want it? Do you not long for it? Do you not want that noise abroad that Jesus is in that house? that's what we want. Yes, it's happening. Yes, the stirrings are beginning. But how easily the gentle dove of the Spirit can be grieved. The glory can withdraw. And you know, in the blindness of our sin and our self-confidence, we might think we've arrived. But we will never arrive until we get to glory. There's always more, brethren and sisters. And if you have been enjoying it, well, now's the time to lay hold upon the Lord and plead for it more and more and ask Him to come nearer to your own heart, to your own soul, to fill you with the Spirit that, that you might live, that you might walk in a manner that is pleasing to Him so that the glory will come and fill this house, will fill your soul. For you are the temple of the living God. When that happens, and our God is in the midst of us, will we know that He is mighty and He will save? The presence of our God, it's the most important thing. It's what sets the only true religion apart from every false religion in this world. Isn't that what Moses said? The presence of the Lord... It makes a distinction. It makes a difference. Exodus 33 in the verse 15 and 16. And the Lord says, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. And he says this, For therein it shall be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight. Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people from all the people that are upon the face of the earth, the presence of the Lord separated them. Jehovah Shema and Christ. Finally and briefly, I want to give time to prayer. Jehovah Shema in the celestial city. The Lord's presence, His immediate 
presence is the hope and the end of all prophetic expectation. It is the sum of all covenant blessings, and it's summarized in these words over and over again in Scripture. We read them in Revelation chapter 21. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. This is something. As I have said, we will enjoy to the fullest and to eternity in the celestial city where once again, like Adam, we will walk with our God. Comes to my mind, thinking about it on Sunday. We are creatures of sense. Our God is a spirit. Confession says he's without body parts or passions. But in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can walk with our God. That's not a figurative expression. We will walk with our God, with our blessed Savior, with the one who is highly exalted. We would be, will be in his immediate presence. We can say of heaven, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Yes, the Lord Jesus, the glory of God will illuminate the city and there's No need of a son. There is also no temple there. There is no need for that outward symbol of uh, the Lord's presence. For we shall be in his presence and we shall bask in God's own light. Oh, the thought of that is glorious. The Lord will be there and praise God by his grace and through Christ's blood. I will be there. You will be there. We will be with him for all eternity. This is the city that Ezekiel saw. It's the city that Abraham looked for. It's that one which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Someday we, we shall come onto Mount Zion and onto the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, we shall come unto Mount Zion and into the city of the living God. Oh, but we can have a foretaste. We can have a foretaste of his presence here below. God desires, he desires to dwell with his people. How do I know that? It's demonstrated by the fact that he, he has overcome by and through his son the difficulties that our sin presented to that fellowship that we would have with him. He's overcome that. He desires our fellowship. If he didn't want fellowship with man, he wouldn't have sent a son. But he desires to be among his people. He desires to be in the midst of his church. And as he draws near to us, brethren and sisters, we need to gird up the loins of our mind, to use an expression. And we need to draw nigh unto him. We need to endeavor to press on, to lay hold of God. Because the presence of the Lord is all that matters. May we know individually and collectively the reality of this compound name, 
Jehovah Shema. The Lord is there. The Lord is there with that young man, that young woman, that man, that woman. The Lord is there in that house, that home. The Lord is there in that congregation. The Lord is there. That's what we want. It's what we desire. As I said, these compound names of God, they are a revelation of his person unto his people in order that we might know him and lay hold upon him and take these things to him in prayer. May the Lord bless his word to his heart, our hearts for his own name's sake. Let's just have prayer. We'll sing a hymn. And then the Reverend Greer will come and make announcements to the congregation. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, O oh our God, thou hast given us a foretaste, but a taste. We thank thee for thy presence in our meetings. We thank the Lord for working in our congregation. We thank the Lord for giving the spirit of prayer and an appetite for the ordinances of the preaching of God's word and even the Lord's Supper. This is thy doing. And Lord, we believe you are drawing us out after thyself. Lord, the devil, self and the world, they will hate us. And our enemies will fight against us. Give us grace, Father. Help us to draw nigh unto thee and to be done with lesser things, to put things right, to call upon our God. Lord, we long. Lord, I long for thee as a preacher, for thee to come to this heart of mine and fill me with thy spirit. Oh God, I long for thee to come among your people. Lord, in that special, that way in which we are conscious that God is amongst us, And once again, we don't need to convince ourselves or go out and try and pull some little phrase together to convince ourselves that the Lord is there. But Lord, that we would know. Oh, Father, Lord, forgive us for our sin. It is what causes thee to withdraw. And we pray, O God, with loving kindness, though thou hast forsaken us for a little time, that loving kindness, O God, thou would turn again. And yet, Lord, in reality, it is us who are turned. So, Lord, bless us now and help us, Lord. We ask all this in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen. The hymn we're going to sing is hymn number 59, please. Hymn number 59, Jesus, a fairy thought.